This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls and we are back on the roof of Parliament again. There's been another letter gone into 1922 Committee Chair Sir Graham Brady, this time from Anthony Magnall, calling for a vote of no confidence. James, is, is this a significant development? Well, I was talking to one cabinet minister law to Boris Johnson and they sounded more, not panicked, but more concerned than they had in a while in that this is beginning to look a bit coordinated. You had Peter Aldous yesterday and that worried people who are trying to prop up Boris Johnson because he was exactly the kind of quiet, unshowy Tory MP who they weren't quite sure which way he would jump and they thought the way he would jump might be a guide to how many other people are doing things privately. Then this morning you had Tobias Elwood, chairman of the Defence Select Committee, go out and call for Boris Johnson to go. In many ways, not a surprise, uh, Boris Johnson uh, dropped Tobias Elwood from government when he became prime minister they've had you know frequent clashes in the past but then again you know i think there are by my count 60 odd former ministers on the tory backbenches and so just saying oh they're an embittered former minister is not an entirely reassuring thing for boris johnson and then you've had anthony magnall who's a 2019 tory intake widely seen as being on the kind of one nation slightly to the left of the party also coming out today and saying that he has put a letter in and i mean the big question that's preoccupying people is what is the ratio between letters that people have publicly said they've sent in, you can find a list on the, on the Spectator website of everyone who's publicly said that they've sent a letter, and how many people have done so privately. And this is very unclear because, you know, past performance doesn't really tell you much. Under Theresa May, pretty much everyone who put in a letter went public. But that was partly because it was a kind of statement of your ideological beliefs on, on Brexit. This is very different. Under IDS, by contrast, very few people went public before the threshold was actually hit. My sense is, I think we are at, Katie, what was it, James Hills, is that at 10, I think, now? Yeah, 10 letters have gone in. More people have called him to go. So, for example, you've got Charles Walker, who has said the Boris Johnson should resign. You've got David Davis, who's had that question at Prime Minister's Questions. Yeah. But neither of those figures have said they've actually sent a letter so, in. So, so I think that if the number of letters publicly declared gets into the kind of 18 to 27 range, that is when I think if I was Boris Johnson, I would be beginning to think the ballot was always heading towards the inevitable stage. Katie, one question people on the outside might have is, if this is being coordinated, who's coordinating it? Is there a sort of a faction within the party who's leading all of these MPs? Is there a grid? Is there a sort of plotting chamber? Is someone installing phone lines across the road? How organised is it? I mean, my sense is, and I I could be wrong here, is it's not actually that organised. So I think you look at the One Nation group, that is quite clearly a group that are not huge fans of Boris Johnson and never have been. If you think back to Boris Johnson's leadership, that was seen as the, when he had to do the One Nation hustings, I was one of the people chairing those and that was seen as one of the tougher gigs for Boris Johnson and one of the early ones where he could have had a really fierce opposition. Amber Rudd was then in Parliament at the time, but it was always people who were pretty aghast, not, I think, a little bit, obviously, the Brexit position, but also things like prorogation, the idea of it. And... 
don't like the BBC bashing. So in a way, you think about how Boris Johnson's tried to shore up his position, Operation Red Meat. Well, think about the One Nation group. I think (laughs) exactly every time you do an Operation Red Meat thing, I think you push this group away. If you talk about privatising the BBC, I think figures in this group will think, well, actually, that's more of a reason for me to put a letter in. I don't like the direction of the government. And for example, I mean, at their meeting last week, um, I think Damien Green, who's the chair of the group, tried to be a bit helpful, said there's a couple of five ways we can try and help this government. And um, Caroline Noakes replied, well, Boris resign, Boris resign, Boris resign. And then I think others joined in and they managed to get to five with the same answer, which gives you a flavour. I also think when Anthony Magnet's worth pointing out, he is probably one of the most rebellious members of the 2019 intake. So before we, uh, you know, take it as perhaps a bellwether, he is... Uh, he led the revolt on aid. Exactly. And I think you've seen a situation where partly because uh, I think some in government have been surprised by how rebellious that person has been on various votes also on China issues like this so I think we're still at the point with the people who are going public if you look at Tobias Elwood and Anthony Magna I think we're still at the point where it is people who are more likely to be vocal on issues but in terms of organisation I mean I think therefore you will have certain factions where there is a sense that maybe they want to move I think that when we talked about the pork pie plot a few weeks ago so the 2019 MPs I think that's gone away they were obviously disciplined and some of them publicly shamed but speaking to some of those involved you know strangely enough it hasn't really brought them back in the tent <laughs> so, so I think you you can see factions moving a bit but it's not as though in the Theresa May period where it's quite clearly the Brexiteer block and therefore you get things going so therefore the drip drip I think can be attributed to a few groups but it is also what makes it really unpredictable and why when we're talking about big moments that could lead to a rush of letters it's also completely you know logical that we could end up in a situation where actually a very random day (laughs) you just hit that number and it's not because there's been like a Dom bomb, a new substack, or even, you know, the conclusion of a police investigation. It could just be people slowly getting fed up across the house. I think there are two, two things are cutting against each other, says the man who wrote his politics column and is now desperately trying to hedge um, on this podcast. Uh, so, on the one hand, I think there was a view after the Grey update from quite a few people who ultimately think Boris Johnson shouldn't eat the Tory party in the next election. But the update indicated that the report was going to be sufficiently bad that there's no point in pushing things now. And if you wait until either the report comes out or after the May elections, you know, there would be a greater consensus in both the parliamentary and, crucially, the voluntary party that there's a need for a change of leader, so you would minimise the amount of poison into the bloodstream. That is definitely one school of thought among people who don't think that Boris Johnson should lead the Tory party into the next election. There is another school of thought, which is look at Jimmy Savile, look at the difficulties ministers are getting into trying to defend that, look at how absurd people look going on TV at the moment to talk about a whole host of issues and other stuff. And so, you know, you're better to act quickly rather than to let, you know, Andrew Mitchell, who very much is publicly of his view, said, you know, it's like battery acid, kind of, you, know, you, you, you want to get it off your skin as fast as possible. And I think when, when 54 letters is reached, and, and as to Katie's point, I mean, the chance that we reached reach by accident are high, I think depends on kind of which of those views becomes dominant. And the difficult thing in terms of, you know, special pleading on behalf of political journalists here, the difficult thing is that, in most people are not definitively in either one camp or the other. They, they jump around between the two in how they think. And, of course, we're talking about the subset of the party that think that Johnson should go before the next election. And so I think that is one of the, one of the things that is difficult, is that people 
people who on Monday night were like, let's wait, have moved a bit, but then they might move back again after some other event. But I think, I think, that, you know, I think the situation is, is, is very, very fluid. Katie, one of the things uh, that the government is trying to do in changing the subject is levelling up. And we've had the levelling up white paper from Michael Gove today. Labour's dismissed it as being old money being reheated. Is, is that a fair criticism or is it more weighty than that? I think, I mean, obviously Labour has a point in the sense that Michael Gove became levelling up secretary after the spending review and therefore the Treasury didn't want to deal out new funds. So Michael Gove had to work with what was already assigned. Now, I think actually he came in just before the spending review. I will correct myself. But therefore, a lot of this had already been agreed broadly. It wasn't time to flesh out your ideas. But they did manage to get some of the funding up. I think that if you look at this, a lot of it is about reallocating and moving things around. Some of these policies do seem to be things that have been previously announced or changed slightly. Uh, Probably the most eye-catching things, if we're looking at the announcements from it, is these 12 national missions that Gove said they're going to set on which they'll judge levelling up all the way to 2030. It's pretty wide ranging. So improving local transport, increasing pay, improving life expectancy, eliminating illiteracy. But what they'll be doing is ultimately legislating. So there is a duty to report on it. I think a trick that has been tried by Labour previously, um, which has also been pointed out. So I think that probably looking at the paper, it is lighter, it has some announcements on arts funding, things like that, Brownford then. But I think it does come across as quite an academic paper in many ways. The draft, I think, was around 400 pages long. The one that's come out is 332. And you have a situation where it includes a list of the largest cities in the world since 7000 BC. What? Why? Um, I think to basically set the scene and what we can learn from history about cities and, and transport and towns. And that includes Jericho. Um, I'm just going to quote from the report here for our listeners. That was levelled down in the end, though, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I think there's some serious questions what we can learn from Jericho. But they say, build better walls. Exactly. <laughs> Don't let any trumpets. <laughs> well, they say the city had natural irrigation from the Jordan River, allowing it to produce and export the most expensive essential oil in the ancient world. Um, so that's one part of the levelling upright paper. It also talks a lot about the Medici model, which you know uh, Michael Gove is very keen of on that cabinet away day talking about levelling up. He wanted a Medici model for the levelling up agenda. No, no, probably avoiding that. But on what we can learn from 15th century Renaissance Italy makes the point that across Europe, the Renaissance period in Italy and the Golden Age in Holland offered examples of periods of transformative city-centric growth. In both cases, the recipe was a familiar one, the magnetic attraction of people, culture, commerce and finance, spreading ideas, innovation and ultimately growth. So that gives you a flavour of it. And I think that... (laughs) Speaking to some of the uh, figures who got to see this in advance and also have had to ultimately go and sell it to various figures, I don't think everyone is overwhelmed by this white paper. I'm going to come to James in a minute because I think he'll give us a profound point on this white paper. But I had one figure say to me you know, that ultimately, they've, and this is someone in government, they view it as Michael Gove. <laughs> Andy Haldane and Neil Bryan showing off about their historical knowledge, which I think gives you a sense that some in government um, expect it to be a bit more meat on the bones than what it actually is. But if we're going to be, I suppose, not charitable, I'll try and be fair, it is a really complicated agenda. But but ultimately, it, I think it, those who have been working on it and are closer to it see it as you know, an important first big step in terms of fleshing up now as a new team as a new ministerial team and from here on it will only expand but I think 
given all the talk in number 10 and the various briefing in recent months so this was going to be what was going to you know kick start a fire up Boris Johnson's premiership after a difficult few months I think it falls short on that front this this document is is much delayed and I think it was I think one of the problems is it was never going to be able to bear the weight of expectations that had been placed on it that this was going to be the thing that that kind of reset Boris Johnson's premiership and showed the kind of you know the route to 2024 and I mean politically I mean there are two problems with leveling up first is as you both pointed out these 12 defined national missions are, are pegged to 2030 not the next general election because leveling up is not a quick rapid progress and then I mean the second thing which is you know all these historical analogies are because it is very difficult to point to contemporary examples of where a country has successfully changed its economic geography and reduced regional inequalities. I mean, take take Germany, for example. You know, they spent two trillion euros in the 30 years after reunification. And yet, at the end of it, you know, yes, they had made progress. You know, East Germany was a, was, a, was, a, was a considerably richer place than it was when the wall came down. But the population was smaller than when the wall came down. And East German as- households, on, on average, have half the assets of West German ones. I mean, that, that just shows you that, that levelling up... You know, no one has cracked how to do levelling up. This isn't like kind of school reform where you borrowed from Sweden or New York or welfare reform where you're borrowing from Wisconsin. You're not trying to copy somebody else's model, which makes things harder. I mean, there are some decent things in there. Selective state six on colleges is a good idea. You, you look in London or kind of Brampton Manor, which sent more kids to Oxbridge last year than Eton. You know, I think those can make a difference. I think that you know more R&D spending outside. I think the stats are that... In London, basically, there's a rough one-to-one match between public and private spending on R&D, while as in the West Midlands, for every pound the public sector sends on R&D, you know, £4 is spent in the private sector. But that, correcting those kind of imbalances, uh, I think, is sensible. But I think, that, I think that expecting it to kind of bear this weight, it can't do. And partly, as Katie said, it's because you know, the whole thing was set up, being done, after, you know, the spending review bids were in at that point the challenging thing is where has leveling up succeeded and i think i think this is the problem which is this is a problem that is afflicting so many other advanced economies that you know that that have gone through their industrial peak you know how do you do this and i think this is something that lots of countries are struggling with and we wait to see you know almost who works out to crack it because people can then manage to copy them i do think one thing which is worth final thing worth saying is i do think more devolution more local mayors is a is a good idea i don't think it is any coincidence that those places that have high profile mayors you know teesside the west midlands manchester they feature more in the national conversation and they're more successful at attracting kind of big projects both public and private well thank you james thank you katie and thank you for listening